What is love? Love is patient, enduring, it's work, not a feeling, selfless, a force, it's enough, powerful, a smile, it's change. Love is an open door, relationship, choice, powerful, love is. But what does love look like? Christ taught us that the world will know we are his disciples by our love. This love for God, the love we experienced firsthand in his resurrection, must translate into love for our neighbors and community. After all, as the body of Christ, it's our duty to carry on his mission. Over the next five weeks, we'll explore what love is, call to love, action, attitude, local, and life. Love is. My lighthouse, my lighthouse, shining in the dark. And before I get into today's topic, just by a nod of heads, and I already know the answer to this question, how many people have been singing 80s love songs all week? Many people have told me, even one youngin born in the 19, late 1980s said, you know what, you're right, that's some classic music right there. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you missed last week, so... Well, we are talking about, I'll catch you up real quick on the important stuff that you missed. I can't catch up on everything. We're talking about is the most important subject in the whole wide world, which is love. And what we talked about last week is that if we don't get love, then no matter what else we get, we lose. Because we agreed last week that according to what the scripture says, that if we know a lot, and we do a lot, and we believe a lot, and we give a lot, and we have a lot, and we say a lot, but we don't have love, then it's all for nothing. Because love is the epitome of everything that Jesus is and that he died for and that he commanded us to live for. And our verse that we saw last week is a reminder of that when Jesus and his final day on this earth before his death, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You see, the reason that I say this series is the most important topic and the reason why I say if you miss this, you miss everything. Because when all is said and done, when this world comes to a close and we stand in front of God on that one day of judgment or whatever it is that we're, our time here is done, everything that we have done was supposed to be taking us towards love. Like sometimes you ask yourself this question, what's the goal of everything we do? Like why, why do we come to church on Sunday? Why do we uh, pray? Why do we fast? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we serve? Why do we be nice to others? Like, what's the goal? What's the ultimate goal of God in giving us the, the Ten Commandments? Is the goal just that we be nice people? Like, is that the goal? That we're just kind? That we just, uh, you know, uh, wave to people in the street? Or we give money to the homeless guy? Like, is that the goal of everything we do? Or is there something more? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. In case some of you be thinking out there that the goal is just to believe in Jesus and live a, a good life. He says this in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He who does the will of my Father. He who acts on the belief that he has. You see, if all you do is you say Christianity, if you dumb it down to a belief and a set of religious practices that you do, then you are no different What's the difference then between, like, what are we preaching different than, than what Oprah's preaching? Or than what uh, the, the, the people on the humanitarian people are preaching? It's just, you know, 
you know, just be a nice person, all this kind of stuff. That's not at all what Christianity is all about. What Christianity is all about is loving like Jesus loved. And the love that Jesus had is much more than the love that we know in this world that we usually define as love like we talked about last week. Love of Jesus is the love that touched a leper and communicated love in a way that that leper had never seen love before. Love of Jesus is the kind that speaks one word to a Samaritan woman, a lady caught in her sin, and he says that one word, and it's so full of love that love oozes out even if it doesn't seem like it's love. Love of Jesus is the kind that looks at his friends and his enemies and says, I forgive you and I die for you. That's the kind of love that we're trying to get right now. And this is the kind of love that we are called to live. Because Jesus said that I came on a mission to do the will of my Father. And that mission is a mission of love. And then as the Father sent me into this world, I also send you into this world. So our goal in this series is to understand what that love looks like. Because we agreed it's not a human love that we're looking for. It's a divine love. And what we're going to see today is that that love, as I touched on last week and expand on it today, that love isn't an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not words. Love is action. We're going to go to Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 20. And this is the famous passage. This is like Jesus' first sermon that he ever gave in public. So Jesus lived so many years in his father's house as a carpenter. Then he began his public ministry. And his first public speech is in Luke chapter 4. He walks into the temple, okay, as they are reading the scripture or in the synagogue. And then he says the following. He says, and it's a quote from Isaiah, but he himself is speaking about himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And now he says his mission in life. Like this is, like you say, Jesus, what's your mission statement? Give it to me. Give me your elevator pitch. Why did you come? And he says, I have been anointed by God. I am the Christ, the anointed one to do the following to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. I love that last part. It says he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant. You know what that is? That Jesus walking up, everyone's up there teaching, and Jesus walks up, grabs the mic, says his little speech, he has pointed me to this, slams it down, and he walks off stage. This is where the phrase dropping the mic came from, right here, what Jesus did, all right? But what he did in this one very long sentence, okay, this very long mission statement, is he declared that his mission is action, not words. And he showed us in this one passage that he didn't come just to tell people God loves you and be good, and don't kill, and don't adultery, and don't lie, and God bless you and go home. He came to get his hands dirty is what he's trying to say. He came to roll up his sleeves and get his hands dirty with loving others. And that's why he says right here, look at the different ways he talked about loving. He said, I should love others spiritually, preaching the gospel, but it doesn't just spiritual. I love emotionally, an emotional love, healing the brokenhearted. He loves people in a uh, a political or a social sense, I should say, not political, a social sense, liberty to those who are captives. And later on, he even says to liberty to those who are oppressed. In a physical sense, that love should be manifest. Sight to the blind. See, he said, I'm not coming just to say a few nice words and then just to pat myself on the back and say, you're a nice person because you didn't do any bad sins. Jesus came to love by action. 
And this is in accordance with what the scripture reminds us of here in James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What is a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What is a prophet if someone says he believes but he doesn't do anything about that belief? You know, in this country, how many people would say they're Christian in this country? Y'all know the statistics? Yeah, it's between 80 and 90 percent. Usually it's around 83, 84 percent of people say they're a Christian. You tell me 83% of the people in this country are walking the will of the Father just because they say we believe? Man, that's not his will, just say we believe. What does it profit if you say you have faith, but you don't have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Easy. I said, I talked about this last week. We've all heard the loving words. We've all been told by people that they love us, but we don't see it in their actions. Love is action. And love is action like Jesus' action. And Jesus' love was not a, a preaching love. It was an active love. And the epitome of that love, in my opinion was at the very, very end, in the same passage where in John 13, where he talked about how you should love as I have loved you. That phrase, love one another as I have loved you, came on the heels of one of Christ's, in my opinion, the epitome of his love for his disciples. And that was after he washed their feet. And I didn't bring the verse up on the screen, but in the very beginning of that passage, before Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, it says that Jesus, having loved them to the end, grabbed a towel and a bucket of water, started to wash their feet. And it says he loved them to the end. And we usually interpret that the wrong way. We think that means loving them till the end of his life. That's not what it meant. It means loving them to the end of love. Because our job in life is not to just give someone a nickel of love or a dime of love or a dollar of love. What Jesus showed us, he said, I'm going to give as much love as I can possibly give. To the uttermost extent of love is what Jesus gave. Now compare that to our minimalist approach to love, which is just do the bare minimum. Don't stab anyone in the back. Don't gossip about them too much. Compare his love, more love, love to the end of love, and then more love who are just, you know what? Yeah, it'd be lucky if I just make it. It'd be lucky if I don't hurt. I one time said in a, in a retreat many years ago, and became kind of like a catchphrase from that retreat, that success in life is not about what you don't do, but it's about what you do do. And that do-do phrase kind of caught on with some people. That, that success is all about do-do or something like that. Or I can't remember what I said exactly. But success in life Success in marriage is not to say, hey, I didn't cheat on you. I didn't steal from your bank account. Therefore, I'm a good husband. That's not success. Success is not to say, I, I, I didn't hurt you in any way. That doesn't make a good marriage. What makes a good marriage is not avoidance of bad, but having the good. And the same thing in our relationship with God. That the measure of our faith is our love. And our love is manifest in love and action for one another, and we'll see that later on today. Love is action. And if you asked every single person in this room, 
Every one of us intellectually knows the importance of love. What I want to spend a few minutes on right now is asking the question, what stops us from being able to love? Like, is our problem that we don't know we need to love? Like, is that the problem? Like, these people over here, they're not very smart. So we're over here, we're saying, why those people aren't loving? Well, because they don't know they're supposed to love. They're not very smart. Is that the problem? Is it the problem that people don't know they're supposed to love? Or is it the problem that we know, and we know the verses, and we desire, we even pray for it, but something is stopping us from getting there? I want to say this, and I want to say one sentence, then I want to unpack this sentence for the next few minutes. Loving others doesn't happen in isolation. Loving others doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of your relationship with two other entities. Like for me to love you is not just a one-to-one -one thing. For me to love this person in front of me happens in the context of two other relationships. I say... I cannot love God or others in a healthy way if I do not first love myself in a healthy way. Y'all agree with that statement? Life is like a triangle with love being the central piece. If I have a triangle that's perfectly balanced right here and I put a little too much weight on any corner of the three, the whole thing spirals out of control. If I don't have a healthy love for God, I cannot love others or myself. That one's easy. If I don't have a healthy love for others, then I can't truly say that I love God. That's what we just read, all those scriptures. And I'm saying, underneath both of those, if I don't know how to love myself, then I'll never be able to love God or love others in a proper way. You know, to be honest with you, my goal for this section was just to kind of mention this. And I was just going to mention this and then kind of move on. But in speaking with people over the past couple weeks, I discovered this actually is a lot more important topic than many of us realize. Because subconsciously, the problem is not here when it comes to loving others. The problem is something inside here. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this topic, on what does it mean to love ourselves in a healthy way, with the purpose of being able to love others in a healthy way. As I said... If this is the, the triangle, if I put too much weight on anyone or not enough weight on anyone, the whole thing spirals out of control. So there's two kind of extremes that we might come into, or I don't want to say extremes as much as unhealthy areas that many of us live in relation to ourselves. One, when we love ourselves too much. One, when we love ourselves too little. One, love ourselves too much, conceit, arrogance, pride. Love ourselves too little, poor self-esteem, self-pity not having enough self-confidence in ourselves. And what I want to see here today, I'm not going to solve either of these two problems today. Because if you have a problem with arrogance, I can't solve that in, one, in 45 minutes. Or if you have a problem with low self-esteem, I can't solve that. But what I want you to see is that the solution to 95% of the problems in life are here. It comes here because that's what the scripture teaches us, that you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's understanding truths, biblical truths, about who I am. And if I get these truths in here, and I can repeat them, and I can watch over, uh, replay them over and over and over, these biblical truths, then they will make a difference in my life. Let's start on the one end of loving myself not enough. I'll say number one, I cannot love God or others if I don't first love myself. 
I cannot love God and others if I do not first love myself. This seems like an easy one. It's a no-brainer. We all love ourselves, right? If you don't love yourself, who do you love? Well, I discovered that a lot of people don't love themselves. A lot of people don't love who they are. Don't love who God made them to be. And if you do not have love for yourself, like logic says, one cannot give what one does not have. So if my goal is to give you the love of God, and I don't feel the love of God for myself, like, I cannot give you what I do not have. Like, I cannot give you guidance, like you come to me for guidance, if I'm lost. They say, here's a lost person, let's go ask him for advice. What benefit is my advice to you? I cannot give kindness if I don't have kindness. I cannot give what I do not have. So I cannot give the love of God for you if I have not first experienced and living in the love of God for myself. A lot of people, you want to know why you can't forgive? Because you're not living in God's forgiveness for yourself. That's why you hold on. You want to know why your words are not salted with grace or seasoned with grace? Because you don't feel that you are receiving grace. How are we going to solve this problem? Like I said, the problem solved up here. With each one of these points, I want to talk about a truth, a biblical truth that you need to ingrain in your head and you need to, like, tattoo it on your forehead. And the tattoo here is that God accepts me just as I am. God accepts me just as I am. And what I, I wanted to use that word accept specifically because like I told you all last week, the word love means many things to many people. And I want to try to break down that word love because love has different components. And the one component of love that so many of us struggle with is accepting who God made us to be. And what I'm telling you is that just as you are, all the warts, all the blemishes, all the weaknesses, all the failures, all the whatever it may be, God accepts you just as you are. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What does everlasting mean? Everlasting means before anything and after anything. So before you did anything positive, I loved you. So when you were worthless and you knew nothing, I loved you. And after you did everything, I still loved you. Means after you failed me again. And then after you went to confession and said you would never, and then you did, and then you again, and then you never, and then you did, I loved you after that too. I loved you on your lowest day where you said nobody loves me. Everlasting is bigger than any one day. Before you were born and cried your first cry and pooped your first diaper, God said, this boy or girl, I love them and I will always love them and nothing they can do can ever make me stop loving them. I accept them as they are. In fact, I'm the one who made them this way. Did you know that in God's eyes, you are the most important person in the world? You will always be the most important person in the world. Every time you walk into this church, you walk by that sign out there and it lists our, our 10 core values. And the first core value says limitless acceptance. That's one of the things that we believe here in this church is in limitless acceptance. And limitless acceptance says that no matter who you are, that any person who walks through those doors into this church is the most important person in the world. Anyone who walks in, that's how we treat our guests. If you are a guest today, then I want you to know that every one of us here who is a member of this church thinks you are the most important person in the world because you did not come by yourself. God sent you here today. And if God sent you, 
and you're God's guest and you have a little thing that says sent by God, we treat you very, very nicely. We give you a cup of coffee. We shake your hand. We do anything that we can for you because you are God's special guest. Well, I want you to know this. Now, the members of the church who say, yes, we limitlessly accept, limitlessly accept everybody else. That imp applies to you as well. Like, it's not just we limitlessly accept those who are coming to this church. We accept, limitlessly accept ourselves who are in this church. And everything that we believe about the sinner who God accepts, that applies to me first and foremost. And I'm telling you that you cannot limitlessly accept somebody else unless you first limitlessly accept yourself. That's a very difficult thing to say over and over, limitlessly accept. <laughs> You're God's special child. And I believe that God came into this world for me, for you. He was born of a virgin. He lived in no-name Nazareth as a peasant. He taught. He preached. He did miracles. All for me. And then one day at the very, very end, near the very, very end, he went up on a cross just for me. Like that's how important I am, that he sweat blood for me. And he's in that garden sweating blood. He could have said, this is too much. This is painful. But for me. He accepts me with the warts and the blemishes that he already knew. And he went up on a cross and said, for you, like for me. And then you come and say, I don't accept myself. Often in church, we focus on improving our lives, which is a good thing. I'm not saying it's bad. It is good. We f we'll focus on, you know, we need to uh, be more purity. We need to work on that. Uh, lying, get rid of that. Uh, we need to be giving sacrificially. Like all the things, we, all those things, those are great. And we focus on all those things. But the order is very important. We don't do those things to be accepted by God. We do those things because we are accepted by God. We don't do those things in order to elicit a response from God. We do those things because it's our way of responding to what he has already done. We are not the actors, we are the reactors. That he loves me, everlasting love, and accepts me, and therefore I desire to do whatever it is that he says. I lay down my life for him, not so that he will love me, but because he did love me and does love me and will always love me, and I'm his special child. Look at this verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Y'all get what that says? If you struggle to know God's acceptance for you, again, tattoo right there. That God died for us while we were still sinners. Who understands this verse? There's a group of people in this room who understand this verse, at least understand it more than others. None of us really understand it. What group of people can understand this verse the best? Parents. Why? This verse is describing parenthood. Hopefully. Because as parents, what do you do? What do we do as parents? We make a decision before the child is of any value, even before the child is born. Once he's in inside that womb, we make a decision, I will die for this child. And that's what parents do. We die for our children. When we die for our children, we say in the middle of the night, when they got poop in their diaper, then we get up and we go clean their diaper. And when they threw up on, not the carpet, on, on your face, then we, 
accept them and love them. And we will pay millions of dollars for their education if they go to private education especially. And we will die for them. We will give our lives to them. Not because they provide any value. No offense. There's little babies in the back room all over the place. Those little babies add no value to anybody's lives. Sorry, one of them is my nephew who I love very much. And my dear friend there. But they don't add value. And another one who I don't even know, but we love that girl too, okay? We love them. They don't add value to us. Yet we give our lives for them. That's what Jesus said, what Jesus did right here. He said he gives his life. He does the unimaginable for his children. And especially, especially, like I want to take it even a further step. I'm talking about how we as parents give ourselves and we die for our kids. But you know who gives themselves even more than parents? Moms. Like dads, we do. But moms. And since last week we had a nice week of a top five countdown we're going to go another top five countdown today because we're in a good mood after last week. We're going to go with the top five grossest things that you know moms that you've done and you know dads that you've seen them do and you just, yuck. <laughs> top five things we've all seen moms do and we love y'all moms doing it for us. All right, and as husbands, we love our wives for doing this for our kids because it's something we couldn't do. Top five things. Number five, we'll start easy and go harder. You've all seen it, okay? <laughs> Catching vomit in the bare hands. Something instinctual in the mom when the kid goes to vomit is to catch it. I don't know if they save it. I don't know what they do with it, like the first vomit. I don't know. Probably goes in the purse because everything is inside a mom's purse, all right? <laughs> We've all seen it. <laughs> Number four, when a pacifier hits the ground. And it's nasty. How do moms clean it? Ah! <laughs> like it had just come from the mouth and it went to the dirt. So I don't know which is worse, the mouth or the dirt. And they, God bless you all moms. We love you for doing it. Number three, a mom sees a kid with boogers hanging down his nose. And her instinct is, <laughs> and you've all seen it, this and I don't know where it goes, okay? Where does it go? But it goes somewhere. Usually in the pool, okay? It goes like that in the pool is what I'm imagining. We love y'all moms. <laughs> Number two. Anytime you see a mom with a wet stain on her shirt, you know she has probably just been peed upon. And you moms have to walk around with urine on your shirts and clothes all the time. We love you for it because we could not do it ourselves. And the number one grossest thing that all moms do, we should get like a drum, can I get a drum roll or something like that? Drum roll. The number one grossest thing is finding brown stuff and praying <laughs> that it's chocolate. <laughs> you know moms, you've all done it. Singles, excited to be moms now? <laughs> Who? Yeah, it's exciting stuff there, huh? Yeah, we've all seen, I got to get this the guy off the screen there, okay. This is a perfect picture of God's love for us, but in a more sanitary kind of a way, okay. This love of a mom that even the most, dis like even the, this, a mom comes in and jumps in on it. <laughs> and jumps in and sees, how can I clean it? How can I fix it? And the kid's crying, yeah. 
I got to get it off again. Sorry. Okay, I got a weak stomach. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that can gross a mom out about her kids. Agree? The one who said not true is not a mom. <laughs> There's nothing that can gross a mom out about her kids. And if that's the way moms love, then why do we think our Father in heaven would be grossed out by us? Y'all laugh. Okay, I'm going to go back to the picture just because it's a nasty picture, but just, yeah, all right, it's okay. Just put it in your back of your mind, okay? Y'all laugh, but that picture, that's how a lot of people in this room feel. That's how a lot of us feel. Like we pooped ourselves, got poop all over the place. The 10th time we pooped, and we're like, there's no way when, when he comes in here, there's no way. Like he's going to see the poop, and he's not going to love me. He didn't throw me out of the house. This is how a lot of us feel. And we don't admit it because we don't want to admit it. But oftentimes, that's exactly how we feel. That I've messed up too much. I'm too bad. I, I, I can never be acceptable to God. Not this time. Like the first time, the second time, the third time, but not this time. And every time I want to tell you that every time you think that, that God comes in, sees the poop, cleans the poop, gives big hug. Because he accepts us just as we are. You don't believe me? I'll show you an example. I'll show you an example of someone who, for lack of a better term, pooped in her pants and was about as ugly as possible to God. And that story takes place in John chapter 8. Before I show you this story, I want you to think to yourself, what is the worst, worst, worst possible way to meet Jesus? Like I say today, Surprise, pop quiz from Jesus. Jesus walked into your house today. What is the worst, worst, worst imaginable way to meet him? Watch this in John chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Watch how she was caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? You know the Southwest commercials want to get away? This is not you're meeting him after committing adultery. That's bad. I just committed adultery, and now I have to meet Jesus. That's bad. That's better than this. You know what this is? In the very act. We don't know. But most likely, the Pharisees, they were trying to set Jesus up. They found, they knew someone, so they broke in the room, in the very act, grabbed her by the hair. Maybe she managed to grab a sheet on the way out. Maybe. Maybe she managed to grab a sheet just to cover herself. And they threw her in the midst, surrounded by all these old fuddy-duddy men, pointing, jeering, sneering. And there, lo and behold, the master of the universe, the judge of all the earth, and you got caught in the very act. What does he do? Well, y'all know how the story goes. 
Jesus says to them, infamously he says to them, he says, leave her alone. He says, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And of course they couldn't because they were all with sin. And then he looks to the lady and he says this. He says, those who heard it, verse 9 now, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. Because Jesus said, whoever's without sin, y'all start casting the first stone. And they said, well, we can't. We cannot convict her because we ourselves are guilty as well. They went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. Pause the story right there. Jesus is left alone with her. Now, Jesus can cast the first stone because Jesus was without sin. And Jesus is pure and he is holy and he is without blemish and he never made a mistake. And he has the right to now judge her and he's going to give her the business. He's going to say, lady, you're a sinner. And he has a right to say that. And he has a right to say to her, lady, you don't have any acceptance in my father's house because you're bad. And he has a right to say that. Well, look what he does. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Man, how many of us need to hear that? How many of us need to hear that? To hear Jesus say to us, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let me ask you a question. This lady, if Jesus then came to this lady next week, like how's this lady feeling after this moment? How's she feeling? I say she's feeling pretty good about herself. Now Jesus comes to her and says to her, you know your sister who, uh, you know, gossiped about you back in third grade? I want you to go and love her. I think she'd respond. She doesn't deserve my love. How dare she gossip about me in third grade? That. You think that's what she'd say? Or you think she'd say, Lord, after what you gave to me, man, there ain't no one I can't love. There ain't no one I can't love. After what you gave to me, there's no one I can't love. The only people who struggle to love are those who feel unloved. The people who struggle to forgive are those who feel unforgiven. The people who struggle to give grace and make excuses are those who feel that no one gives them grace and no one makes an excuse for them. And that's why I say the solution is up here, not here. Up here, you need to know that God accepts you just as you are. And there's nothing you can do. He may say to you, go and sin no more. Because he knew for this lady that this lifestyle lady, this ain't good for you and this is hurting you more than anything else. So I'm telling you out of love, go and sin no more. But I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you. And anyone who condemns you, send them to me, and I will take care of them. That's why he says, where are those accusers of yours? We all have accusers in life. You know who the accuser is with a capital A? The accuser of the brethren. You know who that is that scripture says? It's the devil. And the Bible says, each, the devil and Jesus, each has a role, an eternal role when it comes to me and my salvation. One is my accuser, and one is my advocate. One accuses me and says, Send this one to hell. This one's bad. This one did this. And one is my advocate, my lawyer, my attorney, and says, this one's on me. Leave him alone. I'll take care of this one. This one's with me. Who do you listen to more? The one who accuses you? Some of us, we must really love the devil very much because we listen to him all day long. And then Jesus says a word. We tell Jesus, you be quiet. Let me listen. I have the, the devil on autoplay here. And we listen to those lies and those accusations. Starting point of loving others 
because I have to love myself. I have to accept myself. Blemishes and all. And yes, I should improve myself. All those things, absolutely. But the basis of those things is my love and acceptance, or sorry, God's love and God's acceptance for me, which motivates me then to make a change, not in order to receive God's love. So number one, I cannot love God or love others unless I first love myself. But then the flip side of that, okay, now is the other side. Like we want to drive on a road and sometimes we fall off the road on the right side. And then we say, no, we correct it. But if we correct it too much and fall off the road on the left side, we didn't do much good. So we need to love ourselves, but we don't need to be consumed with ourselves. Because I cannot love God and love others if I am obsessed, consumed with, or overlove myself. Get down to the core of Jesus' preaching to the people. The core of Jesus' message to the people was life is not about you. Life is not about you. Is that in order to have life, you must lose your life. But if all you desire is to save your life, you will lose your life. Your life is not about you. It's about loving God first and foremost and then loving your neighbor as yourself. Life is not about you. You need to know that I love you and then trust me to love you enough and then you go give that love to others. Don't be consumed by loving yourself. Let me love you and you love others. Become, instead of a reservoir of love, meaning I love, like God loves us and we just want that love and more love and love, 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 love. Become not a, a lake, a river of love where you receive my love and then you deny yourself and you forget yourself and you die to yourself and you give yourself to others. And when you do that, I'll fill you with more love and then you go give more love to others. And I fill you more and you go give. Either one of these two, pipes being blocked, loving myself, receiving God's love or sharing that love and the whole thing is going to end up exploding. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. St. Paul says it this way. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. You want to talk about a commandment that none of us fulfill? Sir, you might want to circle that one. Esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Who set the example of in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than himself? Who set that bar for us? Who set that example for us? That's exactly what Jesus did. And that's actually later on in the same chapter, that's what St. Paul says. He says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Okay, what was the mind in Christ Jesus? Who made himself of no reputation, took the form of a servant coming in the likeness of men, and he became obedient to God, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on the cross. The king lowered himself and lifted us up. That's what the king did. The king lowered himself so that he could lift us up. And that's what we're called to do as well. Two ways I want to show this to you. I want to tell you a story, and I want you to watch a video. A story that I'm going to tell you from the Bible, and then a video of someone who's going to share their story of the same point. And the point is the importance of not being consumed by myself. First, the story. The story appears in Luke chapter 12. It's a parable Jesus told about a rich man. I'll read it quickly then and, and break it down. So the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? 
So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry, obsessed with himself. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This fool is the epitome. Remember how last week I told y'all life is not about accomplishments. It's about relationships. Life is not about what we accomplish or what we acquire. It's about relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with others. That's how you be rich. This is a perfect example of a fool, of a sucker, who had a lot of this and had none of this. And he thought because he had a lot of this, I'm the richest man around. And God said to him, you're actually, you're a fool. You're the poorest guy in the whole wide world. See that little beggar on the street who had none of this, but he had all of this? That's the rich man here in the story. You know the part of this story that shows the poverty of this man. The poverty of this man. The story is that this rich man, go back one slide here. The rich man, he's a farmer. And all of a sudden his ground yielded a lot of crops. So in essence, this is like getting a big promotion at work. You just got triple your salary. Imagine triple your salary at work. Like whatever your salary is, imagine that just got tripled. How would you respond to that? Let's say today you go home and you find out that you just got triple your salary. And in addition to that, you got a bonus, a $10,000 bonus. And in addition to that, the, the Ed McMahon millionaire people contact you and you're going to win a million dollars as well. Let's say all these good things happen to you. What are you going to do next? What are you going to do? What's your natural reaction? What are you going to do? What did he do? I'll tell you what I would do. I would open the door to my house, run to the middle of the street, no matter what I'm wearing, and scream at the top of my lungs, I'm a rich man. I just got a lot of money. I just won the lottery. Woo! Suckers. That's what I would say. I'd call my wife. I'd call my parents. I'd call my friends. I'd call people that I hate. I'd call anybody and let them know about this great thing that just happened to me. And you would do the same. Who did this guy call? Who did this guy talk to? He talked to his best friend, the one he loved most, which is who? Himself. Imagine that. You win the lottery, and you don't have a single human being on this planet that can share in your joy. You got lots of stuff, and you can share it with your crops and your houses and your storehouses and your money and your, and your, your, your car and your phone and your new laptop and your slick shoes, and you can share all the joy with those items. But you're poor here. That's why he says, he has a conversation with himself. He thinks within himself. And then he speaks. I will say, soul, like he's talking to himself. <laughs> a lot of us, this is an extreme. None of us are like this. But if we're honest, let's say this. Let's not make it extreme. Let's make be balanced. What percentage? Let's go percentage, because no one's 100 to zero. What percentage of your life is consumed with yourself? Percentage. No one's 100. But some of us, how many hours of the day are consumed by myself? Make myself comfortable, buy stuff I want to buy, have stuff I want to have, say stuff to people who don't give me what I deserve. 
how much of our life is consumed by ourselves? 80%? 85%? I want to tell you that if we're honest, the percentage is a lot higher than we realize. Even the spiritual people, like your spiritual I'm talking to spiritual people. I'm talking about even a lot of the spiritual things we do. We're consumed by ourselves. It's all about us. <clears throat> That's not the path to success in life. That's not the path to riches. It's actually the path to poverty. And that's actually, now we get to the video. You don't believe my word? We're going to listen to a little short four-minute clip right here of someone who many of you probably know, a good friend of all of ours, Sarah. Okay, She was brave enough to share with us about the difference in life from cons being consumed and focusing on oneself versus focusing on others. Listen to what Sarah has to say right here. So Sarah, most people would say that you are a very loving person, but would you say that you were always that way? No, I was not always a loving person in the true sense of the word. Um, due to some events and circumstances I went through in life, um, it was very hard for me to understand love and to give love. I spent most of my life seeking to be loved and um, became a huge people pleaser. I would do whatever it took to get people's approval and love. And my life was all about me, what I deserved and what I wasn't getting. I spent so much of my time in deep pits of self-pity and crying, thinking I wasn't worth anything and that the world just owed me something. And what, what was the result of focusing on yourself and seeking to you know, just be loved instead of to be loving? Well, when I focused on myself and tried to get love and approval um, through my actions, I was always disappointed, upset, angry, and just felt empty. Um, I never got the healing that I needed in my life, and this affected every aspect of my life. I began to think I, um, that healing just wasn't for me, and that I, just, it, I wasn't really worth much. But then I finally hit um, rock bottom. And I ended up coming face to face with myself and with God. And I realized I had to make a choice and um, give up myself to God and believe that he is my healer and that he could love me and that love and healing was possible for me. Um, once I experienced that breakthrough and gave in and looked past myself and my circumstances and past my past really, um, I let God you know, take over my life. And after that, my life was just never the same. His grace, his power, his love just washed over me. And it really just broke down brick by brick the wall inside of me that was pushing away love. Um, my thoughts, my heart, my esteem, my marriage, my friendships, every aspect of my life had changed. And there was really no other way to show that change except for me to replicate that love and share that same love that was given to me with other people. Wow. Well, w one last question. What would you say to someone who isn't convinced? Someone who's drowning in self-focus and self-pity and, and can't really see past themselves. What would you say to that person? My answer would be to give God a chance. You're not meant to live like this. You're not meant to live this kind of life. God wants to love you and 
heal you and give you more than you could ever imagine and more than you've ever desired. But this self-focus and self-pity that we go through is actually pushing him away and refusing the love and, and the plans that he has in store for us. It's really fulfilling our own self-prophecies. And what do you really have to lose but to give God a chance? Look past yourself and look past your circumstances and the healing that you're going to receive from just giving yourself up to others and loving others is more than you could ever imagine and pretty much the change is undeniable. It's not gonna happen overnight and you will have your times where you'll fall again. I always do. But the best part about God's grace is that you get back up and every time you get back up and you allow his love and loving others to change you. Loving others gives you the energy and motivation to keep going and it gives your life meaning and purpose. Loving others opens up your heart and life to change you in a way that you didn't even know was possible. The change and fulfillment that you get inside of you from loving others is undeniable because God is love and that love will just overtake you and that love is something so amazing. It's worth it and just give God a chance. All right, that's, yeah, that's worthy of clapping, absolutely. Absolutely, that ain't easy to do. But did y'all, what I loved so much about what Sarah said there is she actually connected both of them together. And you see how loving oneself too much and not enough are just a seesaw. Like that's all it is, is a seesaw. And it's a pit of, of, of self-pity, which then consume myself, focus on myself to the point, and then I go into conceit, and then that gets me back to the, the drown. Like it's just a seesaw. And what we need to get is to that healthy spot. Look at this nice verse right here from 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It said, we know, and Sarah's words is perfect for this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Truth, focusing on myself, is not only unhealthy, it is deadly. And it is death. During his final days on this earth, most of Jesus' words were focused on love and that you love one another as I have loved you. And he washed their feet and said, go and do likewise. And he spoke about the importance of their unity together. And he talked about me and you and you and them and all of us together in this unity of love. And the reason why Jesus focused on it so much is because of this exact principle, that the key, the secret to a life, a long-term life, spiritual life, success spiritual life not the ups and the downs that we usually but the spiritual life that is growing closer and closer to God the key is love because as Sarah said God is love and if I abide in love I abide in God and if I show love I show God and if I have no love I have no God use God and love interchangeably and it'll change the way you view the importance of you being a loving person in this world last thing I want to say I want to leave you all with a verse and a question. The verse is this. It's a continuation of that same passage in 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Starts with him loving us, but then it doesn't stop there. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See how that works? 
He laid down his life for us. Therefore, we lay down our lives for the brethren. All right? But whoever has this world goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Jesus gave us the model to follow. I love you. You love the guy next to you. Here's my question I want to leave you with. Do you have a healthy view of love? Do you have a healthy, biblical, God-centered view of love? If your love is broken on either one of the two components, on the vertical or the horizontal, then you can never live in the way that God wants you to live. I need to understand God's love for me and love myself in a healthy way. As God accepts me, I accept myself. But then not end right there and be consumed by myself, but seek to share that love and be like a conduit for that love all around me in the world in which I exist. God made this love for me tangible. Now it's my job to make that same love tangible for the people in my life. And the question I'm going to leave you with is this, is imagine. So more of an imagine, not a question. Or imagine what? Okay, so there's a question. Imagine what your life would look like if you had a healthy understanding of God's love for you and had a healthy, not obsession with yourself, but a healthy way to communicate that love to those around you. Imagine the possibilities that would open up in your life, if I'm full of God's love in a healthy way and I'm sharing that love, my ministry, my family, my children, my office, my friendships, just imagine. Imagine what my relationship, imagine what my life would look like one day in a far, far away land called Neverland, which never really exists. If one day, someday, I had a healthy view of love. I want you to imagine that place and I want you to spend the rest of your life trying to get there because there is no more worthy cause than to try to get to that spot. Let's stand together for a prayer, please. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us, for accepting us, blemishes and weaknesses and failures and all. Thank you because there's nothing that we can do to make you love us one ounce more or less. You are love, and all you do, Lord, is shower us with your love. I pray that you would help us all to have like a healthy love for ourselves, not too much, not too little, not worshiping ourselves, but not hating ourselves either. Help us to understand your love for us, to accept who you made us to be, and then to shine that same love and acceptance everywhere we go that we can truly be healthy in this area of love. We ask this in the name of your Son and with the prayers of all your saints. Here says we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.